Today is Sunday, October 2nd, 2016, and this is episode 172 of the Defensive Security Podcast. My name is Jerry Bell, and joining me tonight, as always, is Mr. Andrew Kellett. Howdy, Jerry. How are you, sir? I am uh, really, really good, but about to be very busy. How are you? Uh, the same. You're about to embark on some crazy travel schedule for work, and, and I'm, I'm, what is it, six days from getting married, so... Yeah. We both have a busy October afoot. Uh, Absolutely. So, congrats, by the way. Thank you. And, uh, you know, sorry to all those single ladies now whose hopes have been dashed. Well, they should have put a finger on it. I mean, a, 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 a ring on it or something. Well, however, that song goes. Darn it! <laughs> Not enough coffee. Oh um, boy. So. And you're you're just back from from DerbyCon, which I am sorry I could not make this year, but again because of the pen, pending nuptials. Yeah, but uh, it was a good DerbyCon. It was a very good DerbyCon. Lots of good talks. Although I will tell you, it is it was more crowded than I have ever seen it. You know, really? I, I, I um, like unlike last year, I tried to actually attend more talks this year, but I really couldn't. Almost everything that I wanted to had a, um, you know, they were full by the time I I got there. Yeah. So. Uh, but they're all, by the way, they're all, you know, for everybody who's interested, they're online. You can go to the DerbyCon website and watch the videos on YouTube. There's some really good ones. I will, uh, at some point, I'm not ready to do that today, but I'll, uh, I'll, I'll uh, maybe next time we'll, I'll talk about the ones I thought were worth watching. Yes, indeed, because you've got to catch a flight in a couple hours, so we got to do a yeah, relatively yeah. quick show. But, That's right. Uh, maybe when you're on your travels, we'll try to do some, some remote shows or something and... Indeed. Pick your brain a little bit on some of the good talks. Indeed. All right. So uh, before we get started, the just a reminder that the thoughts and opinions we express on this show are ours and do not represent those of our employer. And I did have lots of people at DerbyCon come up and ask me, you know, so so who does that mean? <laughs> that, was, that was pretty funny. There's this thing called Google. I know. It's not really a secret. And, and LinkedIn. It's not really a secret. Now, who Bob works for, that's a secret. That is definitely a secret. Uh, plus, it's rapidly changing these days. But Yeah. You know. Anyhow, the um, the first, this is not really a story. This is uh, comes from the Journal of Cybersecurity on uh, the OxfordJournals.org site. Which, let me tell you, riveting reading. Yeah, it's, uh, it's good party fodder. You want to print this thing out and put it on your coffee table. I may just take it to like a spoken word poetry night and just read it while snapping. <laughs> Sounds awesome. I'm fairly sure the girls' tops will just fly off. And some of the guys, too, I imagine. Yeah, that's right. I know mine would or something. Anyway. Yeah, you, you look for any excuse to get naked, so, you know, whatever. Well, the llama costume is very hot, so come on. All right, anyhow, um, the the title of the report is examining the costs and causes of cyber incidents. Uh, so a couple of days ago, this this was released and was uh, actually, I guess, 
the 25th of August, so it's been out longer than I thought it was. Uh, but most recently, there's been a bunch of discussion because the one of the, quote, key findings is that the average cost of a, of a cyber breach is $200,000 as compared to the, um, you know, the Ponymon, uh, you know, however many millions of dollars per breach. And, and so this, uh, this report's kind of a, uh, a pretty thorough analytical treatment of breaches that they've gathered from a, um, from a company that provides, um, consolidated data related to different types of incidents to insurance companies. And so they're, they're careful to go through all of the limitations about the, the analysis that they perform. You know, for instance, I think they only have cost data on something like 8% of the, the incidents that they analyzed, but it's still pretty big, pretty big number. And it's clearly not representative of everything that happens, but the, you know, the point here is that, number one, it's not millions of dollars, uh, like the Ponymon breach says. And uh, number two, it's relatively flat. So unlike, you know, the, the at least the the trends of, uh, of, of breach instances is not dramatically rising year to year, unlike uh, some of the other reports would say now I think there there are some important things to to call out because this again was met with uh, a lot of consternation in the security world. Well, they also you know by name called out Ponymon. Well, they do oh, over repeatedly, over and over and over. And and just you know the point seems to be to purposefully or you know legitimately and targetedly counter the cost estimates, but. You know, I'm sure you're going to get into this, but I, one thing I found really interesting was later in the report where they started talking about trends of optimal cybersecurity spend. Yes. And, and I do have some comments on that, but I'll wait till you get to that section. Yeah, sure. So, um, yeah, they, they they do kind of nail Ponymon to the wall on this one. I, I, I think there's an important distinction, and Ponymon actually is does call out the one of the limitations of their of their study is that they're asking you know key people at at um, at certain companies what they believe their costs were right so it's whereas this is i think trying to be a little more objective but at the same time i think there's there's some potential big differences and and you know I I'm reminded of the uh, the remember back in the Kevin Mitnick case back in the 90s when um when when he was being tried I if memory serves right they the uh, the government was trying to I don't know if it was with AT&T or or if AT&T was driving this but they were trying to cover or count the cost of a AT&T building in the losses they incurred as part right. of his attack, right? And so, so, so that I, I kind of wonder. And in, in the case of Ponymon, let, let's just get past the fact that it's a subjective, uh, it's a subjective, open-ended question that they're asking on on breach data or breach costs, I should say. If um, you know, if you as an organization get breached and you lose a bunch of information, you know, you have you you have remedial costs. You got to go and you know buy 
uh, credit monitoring and you got to, you know, hire Mandiant and whatever, whatever other kinds of crazy things that need to be done. And that costs money. And then, you know, there's, there's the brain damage and that sort of stuff, but brain damage is not included in this particular number. The other thing that I suspect is in the Ponymon number that's not here is, uh, is the cost to fix whatever systemic problems there were. Assuming you do. Assuming you do, right? So if, uh, you know, if a, if, if a company is not, let's just say ridiculous example, right? The company doesn't have firewalls and they get, and they get breached. And, you know, and it, it's not hard to think that in the, in the Ponymon scenario, they're going to cover the costs of, of responding to the breach, but they'll probably also include the cost of putting firewalls in. Yeah, we did cover a story a couple of weeks ago too, where we talked about some of the un recognized cost of breaches, downstream costs that may or may not be considered in this as well. But, yep, you know, and on the Kevin Mitnick example, you know, early on in many lawsuits, lawyers will call out any possible cost, no matter how outrageous, to begin the point of negotiation discussion. Yeah. So it's rarely representative of reality. It's, you know, it's the opening point of legal maneuvering typically yeah that's fair so in this in this report they um they break down the you know, the relative frequencies and and uh, cost impacts by business segment so using the naic um, you know, industry code which was pretty interesting and you uh counterintuitively see that that um retail and health are actually at the bottom in, in terms of costs. And uh, and I think it was mining and insurance are actually at the top. So so really interesting, again, counterintuitive compared to what you, uh, or what, what we <laughs> would have expected. Well, what gets covered in the media doesn't necessarily reflect reality of importance. Well, yeah, ex- exactly right. Um you know they they do go through and just the, this is the math weenie in me. They do go through and they try to model the uh, uh, the cost because they they point out that the cost of a breach is in some respects related to the number of records that were breached. However, it's not a linear um, it's not a linear relationship. And so they actually try to model that and they they talk about some work that Jay Jacobs had done a while ago. And I think this was part of the, um, one of the Verizon data breach investigation reports. And there's a nonlinear relationship between number of records and, and cost. And, and so they actually try to refine that a little bit. And I, I'm, I'm reminded of a, uh, I, I took a really complex physics class a long time ago and they have this uh, multivariate equation here to model uh, the, the cost based on the number of employees, the revenue, the number of records lost, whether it was a malicious attack, whether they had that that organization had been previously breached, to come up with the the uh, the expense and and the recollection I have is you know if you get beyond two or three factors, it's probably not right. Yeah, so it's really really tough to estimate this stuff. So anyway, uh, the the real world this doesn't work that way. Uh, anyhow, um, so there were a couple of couple of key takeaways I thought. One was to boil it all out. 
they find that the the average cost of a breach is about 0.4% of revenue. And which, as they point out, is, is interestingly through, I guess, some strange coincidence of math, uh, about the same amount that uh, the average company invests in information security. So typical company spends about 0.4% of revenue on IT security, and that happens to also be about the average cost of a, of a breach. So there's a correlation there, coincidentally or otherwise, perhaps a wisdom of crowds kind of things, of roughly the average breach is one year's IT security budget. Yeah. Hmm. Yep. Now, you know, they they don't say it directly, but there's kind of a an insinuation both in this report and, and in some of the discussion that's been around it, you know, well, what is the optimal amount of spend? And, you know, if you're, if you're going to get, if you're going to, let's say, spend 0.4% of your revenue on a breach, and you're also going to spend 0.4% of your revenue on your security program, why not, why not just minimize what you spend on your security program and prepare for the breach, you know, bank the money? Well, I think one of the challenges there is it doesn't, it kind of negates the whole potential for multiple breaches, for one. Um, well, Sure. I mean, kind of simple. And, you know, one thing they hint at, too, is that if you're going to seek some sort of insurance for cyber liability, there's starting to be a growing consensus among insurers of best practices that will limit your premiums. Yeah. Yeah. So anyway, I thought this was a was a pretty good article. And it, um, you know, certainly there are some limitations. I, I think there's, I think this is a little more, uh, rigorous analysis of of breach costs than the Ponymon study, and and so this might be useful for um, you know for for departments looking to help justify their uh, you know their existence or their investments. Yeah, I did have some some thoughts on that too. That you know they get into ultimately how much should a firm spend on IT security. So let's say that this particular research becomes standard, and you know okay so. It becomes commonplace for an organization to say, say okay, we're going to spend 0.4% of annual revenues on IT security. But there's far more that goes into it. It goes into what a sec- organization's security looks like than just their security spend. Even if we find the optimal security spend in IT, security, being able to sustain or, or fight off an attack is, is much more complex item. It's it's far more complicated than just how many staff you own and how many blinky boxes you buy, which is in essence what we're talking about when we talk about IT spend is is you know capbacks and obbacks. You could have the same tools, you could have uh, the same number of people, but how you go about doing things is is, is highly variable. You know, it's about how you use those tools, how you configure your systems, how smart and experienced your people are, the culture and risk tolerance of the company, uh, you know, allowing for different types of controls to be put in place. There's so many security options now built into the to the average operating systems and such that we that we utilize. How you configure those matters a great deal. So if you hired a bunch of inexperienced security folks and didn't configure your security gear well and, you know, you're not working hand-in-hand with your network and system and teams to harden the environment and, you know, you could have the exact same spend but a much less secure environment. 
That's it's a great point. There there's a there's a hidden factor in here, which is like the efficiency of the the security spend. Right? Yeah. So there's you know one dimension is how much money do you spend, and then the other dimension is how is how effective is the money that you spend. Because it's not hard to imagine a case where one organization, you know, otherwise, you know, all all other all other things more or less being equal, you know, one organization spends a lot less on security, but they may actually be much more secure because they're much, they're just better at what they do. Right. It's not hard to imagine. So yeah, good point. You know, the longer I spend in this industry, the more I see the culture of an organization having such a huge impact on these things too. You know, so it's it's far more than just security spend. Yeah, absolutely. All right, so moving on to our next story. And by the way, I, I like I said, I definitely recommend everybody give that a read. I think if nothing else, it it puts in my mind at least it puts it puts some more perspective around kind of the macro picture of what we're trying to accomplish, and so that having a handle on that's always a good thing in my view. Mm-hmm. So moving on. Oh, go ahead. No, I was just going to say, it does come out of a a university environment. So I often take exception with some assumptions that come out of folks in the research world around InfoSec that don't survive in the real world, but this seems fairly valid, but that's just a side rant. So Yeah, well, you know, and just to continue on that thought a little bit, I, I I think that's often the case, but you know kind of we're 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 going to talk a little bit about this in just a minute but who else is who else is doing it right that's the that's the problem anybody <laughs> well, else anybody people, else that people does, selling solutions or blinky boxes exactly anybody else that's doing this has an agenda and an incentive to you know either either publish the results or not publish the results whether or not or to, based on whether or not it supports their uh, their cause right. i mean there's probably some valid other Groups out there, you know, Sands and you know, Four Engine Pony Mod. No, they all have their own agendas, right? There, nobody is agenda free, including research coming out of uh, organizations like uh, universities. Well, it, it's certainly true. All right, moving on to our next story from HelpNetSecurity.com. The title is Psych- "The Psychological Reasons Behind Risky Password Practices." Um, so, there's, I, I think, there's. Um, it's a it's a fairly simple article, but basically it's say that everybody is terrible at passwords, but depending on the type of personality we have, we internally justify our bad practices different in different ways. And so they 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 point out that the type A people, which I'm not even sure that there actually is a type A anymore, but uh, that the type A personality um, they you know they just they internally justify uh let's say reusing passwords or using weak passwords because um they believe they're in control and so they you know they they have a they have a system that they've got built into their mind that says i'm going to you know i'm going to use reuse the passwords here here and here because i understand the risks and and i'm okay with that whereas the type b uh, personality is, you know, my stuff just isn't that important. No one would want it. Therefore, I'm going to reuse my passwords. You know, n- n- both of them uh, reuse passwords at a, you know, I guess, more or less an equal equal rate. 
Um, it's also interesting that uh, they, they point out in here that um, you know, 91% of respondents in the survey say that there's inherent risk in using reusing passwords, but 61% of them uh, continue to reuse passwords anyway. And, and half uh, say that they fully understand the risks of doing so. And they... Well, the implication here is that just because you understand the risk, you're going to stop doing it. Right. I think a lot of people make risky decisions every day and just accept the risk inherent in whatever they're doing because the reward is worth it or the the risk is not the risk consequence is not high enough to care. I mean, how many other times do we see whether it be drunk and driving or you know, driving their seatbelt off or you know, just using picking on driving for a minute, we do risky things. But this could also be a matter of maybe most uh, consumers don't know a better way or don't feel there is a better way or another option that's worthwhile. Ah, but you know, that therein lies the point of the survey, which was funded by... Wait, La- wait, 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 LastPass! I, of course. <laughs> who, who, will, who will, of course, help you stop reusing passwords? Right. Now, to be fair, I... I I am a huge proponent of password managers, and and I like LastPass, so I'm not ripping on them. But of course, this goes back to they have a vested interest in pushing people to own and use LastPass, right? Uh, but when when I'm being honest about it, I think it's one of the only effective ways an average person is going to be able to handle com- multiple complex passwords. Yeah, I, I, there's this, by the way, this um, you know, this report online and in different forums has. Uh, has really launched uh, just a crap storm of discussion and debate about how, you know, passwords just need to die. And, you know, the reality is that, and, and, and we can all agree probably that, you know, multi-factor authentication is a better way to go than passwords. However, we're stuck here living in the real world where... There's always a trade-off. Everything's a trade-off. Yeah. So the, the point is that at at this point in time, passwords are the least common denominator for most things people need to use, and and, and frankly, may be secure enough. Yeah, for for the average use case. Here's the problem: when you start pushing more complex mechanisms on consumers, you risk losing customers when they have a choice. It is an inconvenience to them. Yep, to have a more complex uh, authentication mechanism. So there is a real competitive issue here, uh, you know, and I think this goes back to some of the stuff Yahoo was arguing, right there wrongly, that forcing customers to reset their passwords would perhaps drive attrition of customers. That's right. And that's a real risk trade-off that companies have to make. Indeed. Although, you know, password managers themselves aren't super sim- often super simple to use either. So they they have a learning curve. They're not trivial, but they're, they're not insurmountable either. And they're getting better, but yeah, I guess the point is they're not transparent and that's the, one of the challenges. So, uh, and that, by the way, dovetails nicely into uh, the the next story, which, which is from uh, defend. It's from the New York times and whitetimes.com. The title is defending against hackers took a back seat at Yahoo insiders say uh so we 
we, we're all probably pretty familiar with some of the history, you know, back, I think it was during the Aurora attacks, Yahoo was one of the, the targets along with Google and others uh, by the, uh, I, I guess it's actually the Chinese, I, I don't know if it's allegedly still or not, but uh, anyhow, uh, a couple years after that, Marissa Mayer became the CEO of Yahoo, and there's kind of post that period uh, there there was some as as portrayed in this article prioritization discrepancies between what uh, what, what the internal security staff believed need to, needed to be done and what the business was willing to do so for instance we well, let's stop there for a oh, moment go ahead. because that is an incredibly common situation yes right so in fact in almost any organization I've worked in, the security staff has always asked for far more than what management was willing to do. Not yeah. to defend Yahoo, but just level setting that first. And that, you know, that's that that's the um, I think that's the the challenge is that almost every organization you're going to have this kind of problem, but it only manifests itself as an issue after you know post breach and people start. People start giving interviews to the New York Times. Well, it becomes a signal of the noise, right? It's very easy to see right. after the fact the decisions that led to that problem. It, that's exactly right. Good analogy. So, Good book, too, by the way. Yeah. But now, let me be very clear. I'm not defending Yahoo's decision-making as we get into this article. So, um, so at some point, they hired Alex Stamos, and I remember this. And at the time when they they hired Alex to be the CISO of Yahoo, there was a lot of fanfare saying, you know, Yahoo finally gets it, and you know they they uh, they understand. And this, I I think a lot of the impetus behind them hiring Alex was after the Snowden leaks. And they they mentioned that in the article too, um, you know that that Yahoo was a, a pretty key surveillance target by the NSA and uh, and so there were there were concerns about the 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 blowback of of uh, you know worldwide users so they hired Alex who was a who's a very 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 intelligent person and a huge uh, privacy rights advocate and um, you know he went apparently reading through this article this this a lot of the stuff is things I hadn't heard before you know, he tried to drive a lots of change, and and I guess some of it was some of it was sticky, right? So they had uh, they changed their uh, SDLC and and you know imparted better security practices throughout the company, but there were key programs that uh, that, that Alex apparently put forward that were just not accepted, and and uh, one of the one of the most notable, as it now turns out. Uh, yeah, uh, as far as I can tell, and this is still a little murky to me, a couple of years ago, they were breached and they had 500 million user accounts stolen. So Perhaps up to a billion user accounts yeah, by the, some accounts. The, the, new, the new scuttle is that it could be up to a billion. Yeah. Um, that's not, that's new news since this article was written. But, Correct. Um, but that happened a couple of years ago, and it, I, I guess... They knew about it, right? And they didn't disclose that fact. And apparently there was discussions at the time about forcing a password change. 
and that password change was rejected. And so, so there's a, there's a lot of hoopla going on. As I understand it, there's a couple of class action lawsuits and there are now, uh, legislators calling for the SEC to investigate Yahoo's, uh, quarterly, or uh, I guess it's quarterly or annual, their, their, their official filings, which per SEC rules are now supposed to disclose any kind of material breach. And, you know, obviously since this is news that hasn't happened. So the timing of when Yahoo became aware of this is, is still not clear in my mind. Uh, Yeah. There's a lot of competing versions of that information right now as to when they knew about it. But um, you know, I guess throughout the throughout the the story, the another another item that was um, proposed and and not uh, adopted was spending ten million dollars on encryption technology. Um, Let's see, I think those were that. Oh, um, no, that is something they did do. They They did did do that, right? It was the uh, IPSs. It was the they. That's right. Sorry. Yeah. Well, and and. So within the context of the organization, the the trade-off was that Yahoo was bleeding users and shrinking rapidly their user base, and they really felt that forcing all of their users to do a password reset was going to drive greater attrition of their user base. Now, right, wrong, or indifferent, that's a decision they made. And the reason I point that out is that every organization has competing priorities like this. And every organization has limited resources and and goodwill with their users, and how they're going to spend it is up to them. And sometimes they make the wrong call, and sometimes they make the right call. But often it's not necessarily the same opinion of the security team. And that's a really difficult position to be in as security folks. And I'm not defending Yahoo. I'm not saying they made the right call, but I'm saying there's a lot of times our recommendations don't get followed up on. They go unheeded. Well, it, this is a this is a tough business challenge, and I think I think it's also, you know, it it, it in some respects comes down to the 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 ability of whether it's the CIO or the CISO, whoever, to put the you know, put the the investment that's required for security in the context of business terms, right? Because if you're going to spend ten dollars on security. That means you're not spending ten dollars on, um, you know, building your product, or or you're right. not you're not sending that ten dollars back to your shareholders. So the ten dollars has to come from somewhere. It doesn't doesn't magically appear out of nowhere. And so the the business leadership, who are not generally security experts, have to, in in the context of business terms, kind of put it all on the table and say, where is the most sensible place? to put this money. And, and, you know, I think one of the challenges is in, in the, when you read this story here is that not only, not only was their investment required in a, in a company who had declining revenues and declining user base, not a great time to be asking for, you know, implementing new security stuff. Uh, you, it also potentially had the net effect of making things more, or I should say less user friendly, which could potentially have accelerated the you know the 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 decline of of the user base 
And there's been some other stories that, not in this one, but that kind of juxtapose Google's uh, approach to this, where they've they've kind of, whether or not you agree with this, right, they've kind of taken the approach of, of security as a differentiator. Whereas in, in the case of Yahoo, they, they seem to have taken the approach that security is a potential inhibitor to customer satisfaction. And the wonderful thing about the free market is now people get to choose. Yeah. If they truly care about that issue. That's right. That's right. Um, and, and I think the other takeaway is that we as security people have to understand the culture of the organizations we're working in and realize what we can and cannot do in those cultures. You know, like looking at a university environment, uh, IT security folks in a university environment usually have to maintain a very, very, very open uh, student network. Right. They can't be throwing in firewalls and IPSs and, and web proxy filters. It's just not that culture. But there's other things they can do, but they have to know what it is they can do within the organizational culture. And so all that being said, you know, Hiring somebody like Alex is a great thing, but unless they empower that or that that they're you know he's a known quantity with very strong views, it was almost like a PR stunt. It looks like because they weren't willing to change the culture to follow those recommendations, and not saying that the company should change for the CISO, but if you hire a CISO and they don't agree with his recommendations, especially with someone who has a known track record of these sorts of things. It seems, I don't know, a little smoke and mirrors to me. But at the same time, a CISO also can't expect the organization to exactly match their views. They've got to adapt to the board and the the executive viewpoint of what the culture needs to be. Right. They need to to help form a a strategy that meshes with the the business's strategy. Um, and yeah, I mean, it, we don't know all like the a details, lawyer, right? Yeah. A, a lawyer doesn't tell business how to do its job. A lawyer keeps it legal as best they can. Right. Right. So we, we in security rarely can tell business how to do its job, but we can try to keep it safe. Good point. Good point. So anyhow, uh, in, interesting. I, I do agree with you though, that in, in hindsight, the, uh, the, the hiring of Alex by Yahoo seems like it was um, kind of a direct reaction to, to helping stem the tide of, of fleeing people from, uh, um, you know, from their customers, from their products. So I guess they're really not their customers, are they? They're, they're their users. Customers are the, the advertisers. Good point. (laughs) Anyway, uh, moving on. This is the the final story, which is also about Yahoo. I thought this was good, and you know, in in particular because it satiates my my need for um, you know confirmation bias, right? Which which uh, the title here is Yahoo breached the great nation state cop out. Uh, so sh- shortly after the uh, the breach was announced, the the CEO or the CISO, I should say. Uh, Announced that apparently this was the the alleged work of nation state hackers or or hackers who were supported by a nation state and uh, and so the the point of this article and this is something that I have railed on quite a lot is that 
there's so much incentive are all the way around to blame uh, nation states, right? When in, in the, the point here, and Jeffrey Carr is a great quote in here, you know, everybody wants, nobody should believe anybody who blames a breach on a nation state. And, and no one should want to do that except for CEOs because they have a direct incentive and, you know, it, uh, benefit from doing so because, you know, no one wants to, to get up in front of uh, reporters and say, yeah, we were breached by, as Donald Trump would say, you know, the 400 pound hacker in mom's basement, which the breach was huge, huge breach, huge breach. And Mexico uh, paid for it. <laughs> we should just build a wall, a big cyber wall and, and make Russia pay for it. Um, anyway, Back, back on track. And don't forget Mr. Kevin Mandia with his infamous letter to Sony. That's right. That's right. So you know, I, I think everybody all the way around is incented to or incentivized to blame nation states. From the perspective of a company like Yahoo, it's a whole lot more palatable to say, you know, it was... Um, it was Russian state-sponsored or Ru- the Russian military hackers who did this. Because if you say that, and that is in fact what happened, there's probably little you could actually do, right? Because if you're the right. f- if you're the focus target of some, you know, some major world powers military or intelligence agency, you're probably not going to defend it for long. I mean, you could probably <laughs> slow them down a little, but ultimately you're going to lose your secrets. the The thing that's really odd here is. You know, to what end? <laughs> right. So, you know, what what possible what possible use does a does does a, a a Russian military group have with or a Russian intelligence agency have with penetrating Yahoo, gathering all this data and then dumping it on the internet? I don't know. But it doesn't mean it, it wasn't them. But it doesn't mean it does not mean it wasn't done. That's but, right. But it goes back to the point of we have always been incredibly skeptical of nation state attribution on yep. the show because it's not that unique. Right? This is not like a space program. I mean, these are things that small individual groups or even individuals could do. It doesn't have to be funded by a massive organization like a government. It really doesn't. Yep, that's right. So, uh, and and you know we've covered ad nauseum how the, the individual markers of attribution are easily misunderstood and forged. It's you know I, I'm always very 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 skeptical of attribution, and, and you know of course to counter that as well, the government has visibility to things you don't. Well, it's also in the government's interest to say that it was another government who did this because guess what? It ups their budget. Uh, well, that's absolutely true. That's so, absolutely true. But here's here's the funny part. At the end of the day, I don't know that attribution is, at least for our level, in in defending our organizations and the blue teaming that we need to do, attribution is the last thing I usually care about. It doesn't matter who did it. I still need to stop it. Best I can. Yeah, there... There's there's a lot of this is a this is an area of a lot of contention. I think there was a there was a talk at DerbyCon about 
uh, the need for attribution. I, I want to say maybe I'm misremembering. I, re- I I saw something recently about the importance of uh, of, of attribution. I, I I tend to think that you're right. For the most for the most part, we're dealing with ransomware, and it doesn't matter if your ransomware came from uh, you know the Ukraine or Russia or or Idaho. Probably not. Uh, so, anyway, I, I I think that for the most part, most most organizations don't have the maturity uh, in their security program where attribution worrying about attribution is really all that beneficial. I do think that as we see here, attribution has a benefit in terms of messaging post breach, though, and that's. You know that, and that's the that's the whole point yeah, of this. It, it's then it becomes a PR war, right? Because you know, look, we you know we were Yahoo, we're Yahoo. We we got breached by the Russians, and really nothing we could have done. Yeah, we you know at least our passwords were encrypted. <laughs> right, right. So don't sue us. Right, it wasn't us. It was uh, it was Russia. Nobody can fight Russia, right? Or or, or North Korea. Oh yeah. So anyway. This yeah. is the show for the this week. Thank you, everyone, for listening. And uh, it's over the next couple of weeks will be a little, uh, probably a little intermittent. We will try to get shows out as we can. Uh, thank you again to all of our Patreon donors. So amazed that uh, that you you support the show. That's really very very much appreciated. You can find links to all the stories we talked about today on our website at www.defensivesecurity.org. You can follow the show on Twitter at DefensiveSec. You can follow Mr. Kella on Twitter at Lurg and me on Twitter at MaliciousLink. And uh, I guess before we go, we should talk a little bit about the uh, the whole Ignite thing, which I believe the uh, the CFP is closed now for. CFP is closed. Yeah, now you and I got to pick uh, We got to go people. vote. Yep. Uh-huh, uh-huh. That should be fun. So, and that's for the O'Reilly Security Conference in New York, uh, October 31st, Ignite session that Jerry and I are hosting. That's right. Should be fun. Be there, be square. It, it, by the way, the, the conference looks to be really good. So if you, uh, if, you, if you can get out there, I'd recommend it. It's very much a blue team focused conference. So that, that is a, a little different thing. Yeah, right up, right up our alley. Anyway, uh, thanks for listening, everyone, and we'll talk again later. Take care. Thanks. Bye. Have a great week, everybody. Bye-bye. Yeah.